Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Social Founder Stories, the podcast for everyone interested in inspirational stories about charities and social enterprises. I'm your host, Caroline Deal, and I'm the founder of two charities, the Media Trust and Together TV. I well know the joys and challenges of being a social founder. Social founder stories are about the amazing people who make social change happen. People who use their passions, skills, and entrepreneurial drive to make a difference and to make our world a better place. You'll hear about what makes social founders tick, how they create impact, what they struggle with, and how they overcome their challenges, or not in some cases. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network, in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. So enjoy listening to Social Founder Stories. Send us lots of feedback. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast and also to our newsletter at socialfounder.org. We'd love to keep in touch with you. Pragna Patel is the founder and director of Southall Black Sisters, one of the UK's leading women's organisations for black and minority ethnic women. In 1982, Pragna resurrected a local initiative, turning it into an established advocacy charity, a national helpline and a powerful campaigning organisation. Pragna tells us about what it takes to establish and grow an organisation, to create the infrastructure, find the right board, maintain values, keep the right balance between services and campaigning, how to cope with setbacks, find resilience and celebrate achievements. We hear about the powerful law centre movement that inspired her initial work and the fears she has for equality and social justice today. So Pragna Patel, I'm really delighted to have you here with us for the next episode of Social Founders. Thank you for having um, me. Really, really great to, to be with you. I've known about you and followed your story for decades, actually, because you, what you do is really unusual, really original and, and supremely powerful as well. So we're really interested in hearing your story. Before we go back to your original drivers to set up, South of Black Sisters. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do now and what it is? South of Black Sisters is a not-for-profit organisation. We run an advice, advocacy, counselling support service to meet the needs of some of the most vulnerable women in society, including black and minority women. In fact, our focus is black and minority women and their needs. Um, majority of the women who come present with issues of gender-based violence and then related to that problems to do with immigration, mental health, homelessness, um, lack of access to legal support, lack of access to welfare benefits and destitution and so on. So these related issues very much make up the part and parcel of the work that we do. We 
provide women with the advice, we advocate on their behalf, we facilitate their access to legal services, to welfare services, housing services, and we support women in a very holistic way, which includes providing counselling, um, outreach work, support group therapy work, to help women mm. heal themselves, to recover from their trauma, and to try and live independently in safety and security. The bulk of our work is about empowering the women right at the bottom of the ladder to have a voice in society, to be empowered, to feel that they have a stake in society and to be able to kind of assert their rights to freedom, to justice, equality, dignity. These are really, really important um, uh, principles for us in terms of how we organise our work. Yeah. Um, really, really important, especially as there are so few advice centres left, aren't there? And the old law centres are gone. There's a kind gone. of legal desert, legal advice desert now. When I founded the advocacy centre, in fact, my inspiration came from the law centre movement. It was just incredible back in the 80s to see amazingly committed lawyers who who weren't interested in material gain, but who are very interested in making sure that people at the bottom of the pile had access to justice. Tell us a little bit, actually, what was the Law Centre movement? So the Law Centre movement was a bit like a grassroots movement from bottom up to provide ordinary people, people who didn't have the resources with good quality legal advice and representation to challenge, uh, for example, discrimination in employment, to challenge housing authorities for not um, accepting them as homeless when they need social housing, to challenge the lack of access to welfare benefits, um, you know, sort of bread and butter issues that most people at the bottom of the pile experience. And that was UK-wide. And that was UK-wide, and it was very much community-based law centres, very accessible, incredibly talented and you know, very brave and very um, committed lawyers running services to meet needs of local communities um, and doing it in a way without sort of, you know, seeking glory or um, fame um, or even remuneration. They weren't hugely well-paid jobs, but it was really, really an important part of a wider social movement for equality and justice. And I was so inspired by these lawyers who daily, day in, day out, dealt with these bread and butter issues. Actually, the real human rights work is being done by unsung heroes in what's left of law centres now, in advice centres, in communities, and they provide the real human rights, which deal with people's daily realities Mm -hmm. of, you know, discrimination, Mm -hmm. of unemployment, of homelessness, Mm -hmm. of destitution, Mm -hmm. and trying to give people access to the courts and to the law is real human rights work because the right to a livelihood the right to safe housing, the right to protection. These are human rights issues. And this is what you campaign on, Suffer Black Sisters. This is very much my 
vision of our advice and advocacy work. And how much are you focused on the local, which I know is a really powerful part of your work, and how much on the national, even international work? For example, you have a helpline. Is that accessible to anybody? That is accessible. In the UK? That's a national helpline. Our work for reasons to do with practicalities and resources is much more local based in terms of women coming through the doors supporting women over weeks and months sometimes even years means that they've got to be local because they can access our services more easily but our helpline is national so we get calls from anywhere in the UK even international Um, our policy and campaigning work has a national and even international reach by the nature of the issues that we campaign around, by the nature of the work that we do where, because they are black and minority women, many still have links through marriage and by birth to other countries of origin. Therefore, sometimes our work will have an international dimension to it. Uh, But more than that, our vision, our political vision, is one where we see that there are interconnectedness of struggles, that we don't struggle on our own, even as women, that we are connected to the struggles that are taking place on a much more global scale around violence against women. And so our vision is, you know, to be less parochial and more outward looking and to connect to other struggles. But of course, in terms of our day to day work, practicalities and the resources will limit it to those who can access more immediately our services. I like the fact that, you know, the combination of the grassroots work where you're actually listening to and talking to and supporting directly women must inform your campaigning work enormously it completely feeds into the campaigning and policy work can you also give our listeners an example of one of the campaigns that you've run that has been most powerful i know you've done so many we have done so many give give people a feel for how you work if i give you one of my favorites yes do do. um so one of my favorites is the 20-year campaign that we have waged I mean, that's one of the things that it's really important to understand that if you're doing this work, you're in it for the long haul, right? It's not about instant gratification. It's not about instant rewards and those highs and lows along the way. But one of the ones that perhaps mean the most to me is a campaign that we began around 2000, no, in the late 90s, which is to try and change immigration laws. In the UK. In the UK. Immigration laws have also always been an arena where it's difficult to win victories because the wider political climate is one of hostility. It's one of limiting people and limiting rights. And so for us, the dehumanization of much of immigration law and policy is something that we have set ourselves against. The kind of culture of surveillance, the culture of control, the culture of dehumanization yeah. of migrants yeah. is is just something that's just got worse and worse and worse steadily. Um, and so in that climate, to try and seek reform of immigration laws, to give them a bit more human face, is is very difficult to do. But in 2002, we managed to introduce something called the domestic violence rule. And what that um, 
it, it it's still the case now. What that means is that if you are a migrant woman and you've come to the country on the basis of marriage, yeah. in other words, you um you have a spousal visa, uh-huh. the law stipulates that you have to show that your real purpose of being in this country is marriage. Therefore, you have to remain with your married partner for five years. Mm -hmm. And during those five years, you're not entitled to claim any kind of social security or social housing. You're economically dependent entirely on your married partner, who is usually a British national or settled here. Mm What we were finding is a lot of women coming to us who'd been subject to abuse and violence. But because they tried to leave within the five-year period, they would be subject to deportation or removal, and they couldn't access any kind of welfare support. So for those women, the choice was really stark. Either stay in an abusive marriage and risk their lives or leave and risk deportation or destitution, and destitution, actually. Yes. So we wanted to change the immigration laws to say that if women are subject to abuse, domestic abuse, they should be able to leave abuse without fear of destitution or deportation. And that took 10 years as a campaign. But eventually, the domestic violence rule was introduced. Fantastic. And that now means that if you are a woman, you've come here on a spousal visa, you're subject to abuse, you can leave the marriage as long as you can evidence the abuse, which you usually do through, you know, letters from GP or hospital or organization like ours or through the courts. As long as you can evidence domestic abuse you will be entitled to uh, remain in the UK indefinitely. So that was just incredible. That is a great story. It's a fantastic achievement. And and again, for our listeners, you can imagine how campaigning to change the law, but at the same time being there to provide the practical advice. Because it's the practical. To translate that law into into the the, the daily requirements of people's lives and where they can go and how they can get help and who they can contact. It's a really good example of the... The, the front line and the campaigning yeah. working together because it was actually that front line experience. We, our hands were tied when women came to us before the introduction of the domestic violence rule. We couldn't do anything for them. That prompted us to campaign. And the change in the law now means that when women come to us, we can practically offer alternatives to those women. We don't tell them that they have a stark mm-hmm. choice, that there isn't anywhere for them to go. Mm-hmm. And but how the, do you, how but do you... the next bit part of that campaign took another 10 years Oof. because we then said to the government, well, it's all very well that they can leave a violent situation without fearing deportation. But because of the condition, which is, you know, no, no access to welfare support, what's called the no recourse um, funds rule, mm-hmm. Even if they leave a marriage, what are they to live on while they're waiting for their applications to be processed to stay here indefinitely? And it took another 10 years, but in 2012, the government introduced the domestic violence destitution concession. So that now means that if you leave an abusive marriage, 
not only will you not be deported if you can prove that you're a victim of domestic violence, but pending your application to remain in the UK as a victim of domestic violence, you can also access benefits and social housing. Fantastic. A great achievement. And that has made material difference to thousands of migrant women. And how did that make you feel as a, as a founder and as a leader of this organisation? We must have had enormous ups and downs during the first the five years and then the ten years. It's well, a long uh, time. Initially, it feels like your, your voice is just going into the wilderness that Uh nobody's listening that this is too difficult it's after all it's about challenging governments immigration laws and rules the governments around Europe and everywhere just so strict Um, it's challenging the popular views that migrants here are taking over you know all the services and draining and a drain on the wealth of the country it's challenging so much that you feel you're up against a brick wall most of the time where do you draw your strength from because one thing that all our founders in this network have in common is incredible strength Mm. you know they're constantly beaten down and they come back again Mm. Where did you personally draw, or where do you now still draw your strength from, and who are your support network, and how how do you cope with those moments when you think, I can't do this anymore? And Well, what keeps us going is anger. Mm, interesting. If you, are, if you see things around you and you get angry, then for me it's about translating that anger into I'm going to do something about it. Yeah. And so if you were to say to me, what keeps you going? It's anger. (laughs) It's anger at the injustice of a situation. It's anger at the growing inequality. It's anger at the way in which certain people are just deemed disposable, whether they are poor, whether they're women, whether they are migrants, whether they are disabled. It's anger at a system, at a world that seems to think that we can... Uh, divide people into the privileged and the not privileged. It's anger at the way in which people's lives are deemed worthless. As long as I am angry, I am wanting to confront the injustice of a situation. And to campaign and through, to campaign through South or Black Sisters. Through, through South or Black Sisters is a is our vehicle. Is vehicle. Yeah. It's our vehicle by which we can give voice to those who have no voice, yeah. who are powerless. Yeah. But more importantly, to ensure that people have access to their rights. Who do you go to for support when you when you just think I've run out of strength. Tell us a little bit about how you find strength from other people as well as within yourself. When I founded South for Black Sisters as an advocacy centre back in 82, I had inherited the shell of a campaigning group. So I resurrected it. And to do that, nobody achieves anything on their own. And so you do need people around you who think like you, like-minded. So you seek members, you seek people who are willing to be part of that vision, who are willing to be part of a member support group or a management board. So you seek out people who, more than anything, even more than skills, share the same values. So that when you're struggling, you're struggling So when you're together. struggling, you're struggling together. People understand. And also, because if you want to make the success of a project, you don't want to be internally fighting for things that you believe in. You want people to be already there with you 
on that journey, believing in what you believe in. This is not about day-to-day priorities, but the wider vision. If people don't share that, they can sap your energy. It can sap your enthusiasm. It can demoralize you. So you need to surround yourself with people who share your vision, your values, your principle. Yes. Then, of course, inevitably, on a day-to-day basis, in terms of resources and so on, you're always going to work out what are your priorities and they shift and change yeah. because you have finite resources. Yeah. So when you re-establish this organisation that hadn't been an organisation before, just been a local campaign, yes. did, you, did you think that 40 years later it would be still going? Oh my goodness. Do you know, there must be something about youth and fearlessness. Uh-huh. Because if you were to say to me now at my age, you're going to start a centre and you're going to start this organisation and you don't know, you've never done anything like it before. You've never done any other work before. You've come straight out of college. Wow. I came straight out of college, believed in the need to have a centre and an advocacy centre and a campaigning group that campaigned around women's issues, but particularly migrant black and minority women's issues, I had no idea how to run a centre. I had not even written letters in my life. I had no idea what it meant to put together a constitution for the organisation. I had nothing except a vision and an enthusiasm and a determination. But if you were to say to me now, without any of that, set something up, I'd be saying, excuse me, I don't think so. <laughs> Whereas I hope that's when... not your advice to any future no, founders listening. My, my, no, <laughs> well, I am saying that There is something about when you're young, there's a clarity of vision, there is a fearlessness. And my, my advice is follow it, follow your gut instinct. And along the way, you just work out where you're going to pick up those skills from, who you're going to turn to. In my case, there were other advice organizations in the area. There was a law center in the area. I would just go and find out how they did their filing, how they wrote letters, what templates they use, what their constitution, can I use it to develop my own? You just then pick up things. There's always a way. And did you have, at that stage, did you have a board already set up? Of course, when you set up a formal entity, you have to have a constitution. Are you going to run as, as a company, limited by guarantee? Are you going to be a charity? You know, how are you going to constitute yourselves? Mm-hmm. What requirements will you then need to formally meet mm-hmm. in terms of accountability issues, of financial accountability, others? So you have to set up all those structures. How are you going to employ others? What are your employment practices? You need all of that put together. And did you did you enjoy doing that sort of stuff, actually? Not I really. Because it, it wasn't do... really at the heart of no. the campaigning. But... No, but you have to do it. It's like the infrastructure is needed. It. Yeah. And without it, you know, you can't hang your ideas on anything without that infrastructure. Because I actually did with the Media Trust, I quite enjoyed the building blocks, mm. putting it in place. And mm. the more you create those building blocks mm. and put in place the, the structures, the constitution, mm. the people, mm. the mm. visions, the strategies, the more likely you're going to create an organisation that's there to stay, uh, or at least to stay as long as it's still needed, rather than something that could just be blown away by the wind. Yes, but I I am a firm believer that structures you can always reformulate. Yes. The people is the key. 
any organization, it's the people in it that make it. So you've got to have the people who really want to go on that political or that journey with you. Are you a charity, by the way? Yes. Well, we're, we we have a complicated structure. The Southall Black Sisters is company limited by guarantee. Mm-hmm. We're not a charity. And the reason we're not a charity is we've always been concerned about restrictions on charity in terms of campaigning. I was going to ask you about and that. We yeah. have a political voice. Uh-huh. And we do not want to dilute that yeah. voice. Yeah. Um, which is not to say it's a party political voice, but it's a political voice. So for us, it was very important that our hands weren't tied behind our backs yeah. in terms of what we can say and not say. Yeah. And we've maintained that independent, critical political voice, and I'm really proud of that. And do you have a but char- yeah. we have a charity wing uh-huh. to us, which is called the Southall Black Sisters Trust. And the reason we set that up is some of the funders prefer to fund a charity rather than any other kind of entity. So some of our funding comes via the trust. So it's kind of slightly complicated, but it works it for works us. Fine. It yeah. works, does it? I think people now understand that structure, but as long as you keep yeah. the two <coughs> vaguely separate. Yes, so um, the trust has its own trustees, and Southall Black Sisters has its own managing board. Yeah. So it's, you know, they, they're kind of separate in that sense. Uh, and tell us a little bit, Pragner, about how you've managed financially to keep the organisation going. Were there times when you thought, oh, this is going to collapse and we're going to run out of money? You've been nearly 40 years mm. now, so mm. 40 years since it first started and mm. almost 40 years since you founded the actual organisation. Mm. How how did you keep it going financially? How do you still keep it going financially? Oh, because every every year is a struggle. 40 years ago, this was one of the, the real challenges, is how long is this going to last? Mm. It will last as long as we get funds and donations and and, you know, resources from places. But who would have thought? I never in my life would have believed that somehow we would have gone through 40 years without worrying about, not not without worrying, that's the wrong thing to say, without having to fold up. Congratulations. So many small businesses go under, so many charities go under. Yeah, I mean, obviously I don't know whether this is a blueprint for business because we don't run it as a business. We can't. The work that we do wouldn't survive that kind of model. Mm. Do you think your clarity of purpose and your very clear target audience as well, that you're there to support a particular group of beneficiaries, do you think that was key to it? Absolutely key to it. Clarity of purpose, I think, is just absolutely key. And your personal drive, Pragma, as well, that anger you were talking about. And absolutely. The determination you, you've got justice. to have people at the helm who have a vision. Because it's about realising that vision. It may not be in exactly the same way, but that vision is also Mm -hmm. never-ending. Has the income changed the kind of money that you can get? 40 years ago, most of our funding came from grants. In fact, all of our funding, even now, but they don't call them grants, they call them commissioning, you know, funds and things. It gets more and more difficult, Mm -hmm. I have to say. And that's the kind of marketization of the NGO mm-hmm. sector, which is really problematic. The contract culture. Contract so culture, hard. which we're trying to buck the and, trend. And which can drive organizations in the wrong direction. Absolutely. Direction. And this is, again, where the clarity of vision matters, yeah. because it's very easy to start 
fitting your vision to meet funding requirements rather than the other way around. We find a lot of the founders are now being driven by the need to innovate all the time. So there's still a need to provide the core service they originally set up for, as in your your case. But the funders, the grant funders, even government are are asking always for innovation. They don't want to fund the same work year after year after year. That that irritates me. (laughs) And all the rest of us. And frustrates me. Because I'm just thinking, if the model is working and meeting its objectives, why do you want not to fund that? Why do you want us to forever set up projects? And the projects are really geared towards getting the funding, not because they in themselves are important to have. And too many organisations setting up project after project after project that means nothing but just so that the funding can come in. It's like instead Um, of being able to go in a direct straight line, we have to zigzag. In all directions. And 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 really waste a lot of time and resources doing it just so that we can get a little bit of money to carry on with the core work. So that's very frustrating. But... Um, so when we began, most of our funding came from, for example, the Greater London Council. Yeah. After that was dismantled, local councils picked up some of that funding. We continue to get funding from local council. We're very lucky in Ealing. They're still committed because we fought that battle and won yes. uh, by taking Ealing Council to court. Wow. Um, and Practice, that's a, that's a, I didn't know that. Well, they had tried to, in 2008, 2009, they withdrew our funding and said that special services were no longer needed. <laughs> and the interest of cohesion and integration meant that everybody should uh, access generic services. And we said no, and they said organisations like us were cause of division and segregation in society, which was just rubbish. But um, we said no, and then we said, where's your equality impact assessment? You made this decision to withdraw funding. You're saying that everybody can access generic services, but show us your impact assessment. And they hadn't done one. Eventually they did one, but it was retrospective to justify their decision. We judicially reviewed their decision, went to court and won. Yeah. And um, and the court affirmed our right to exist as a specialist NGO for BME women. And the court affirmed our right to do so on the basis of helping women achieve equality. Yeah. And that rather than cause division, we we're actually encouraging the most women at the bottom of the pile to have a stake in society so we're actually trying to integrate women who otherwise are marginalized and at the end at the fringes of society so that that's a big step to take did you have legal advice free legal advice on that sort of we managed to get free legal advice yes pro bono we often as we often have to do when we're challenging in this case local authority but sometimes other bodies tapping into committed lawyers who see that their role is not just to make money out of law and have you ever thought about i i have trained as a solicitor you trained as a solicitor i did you while you were working no i worked so i worked at southall black sisters for 10 years then i went away from the organization a bit I stayed involved at a management level and then I trained as a lawyer, practiced very, very briefly. Uh And then the organization was going through another one of those periods where it was 
um, touch and go in terms of survival. So I threw myself right back in. That's so interesting. that I didn't know that at all. So you came in effectively to rescue what had been a little campaign. Yes. Turned it into an organisation, stayed 10 years as yeah. the founder, stepped back, yes. but staying on the management yes. committee, and then jumped in again. And now you're very much still the founder yeah. and, and yeah. the leader yeah. as well. Um, how interesting. And were you 100% sure that was the right thing to do, to come back in again? Or did you, did you, you have know, doubts? And You always have doubts. Mm. Always have doubts throughout. That's very honest of you to say about always having doubts, because always I doubts. think that when we have our founder events, the, the social founder network they're often Chatham House rules that people are talking about things that they wouldn't say publicly and they wouldn't say in the media and, and that does that goes against their brand of being a very strong leader and founder mm. and the doubts thing does come up the doubts yeah. and the loneliness are the two things that loneliness come is very the, true to tell us about tell us about the doubts so you have doubts how do you deal with that personally how would you advise I, other founders to... So the doubt, the doubt is always, am I doing the right thing? Yes. Is this the right thing to do? What if this happens? The responsibility is enormous. Your shoulders are enormous. You know, you have to carry the burden. Um, as an organisation, also as an employer now, when you've got staff, you oh, have to I, take I so responsibility for people who are working and... Doubts are always there. How do you deal with them? I think the best thing always to do is voice them with people you trust. Mm -hmm. Look, this is my perspective. From your perspective, does this sound the right thing? This is my gut instinct. What do you think? Always sound out a few trusted people around you that you're really close to who share your vision, but who may have skills in other areas. In my case, you know, lawyers that I might know of, others, look, am I doing the right thing? Am I right to take the local authority to court? Because in a way that's sounding our own death now, we may never get funding again if we lose. Risks. Yeah. If we lose and and also, you know, they'll they'll see us as troublemakers. Am I doing the right thing? And when you're doing that thing of sounding people out... Would you start off by sounding people out who aren't part of your management team, yes. who aren't on your yes. board, so just so yes. that you can then go back in yes. with the strength and the and the absolutely, absolutely. You sound out people like I will sound out lawyers because obviously, say in the case against Dealing Council, I had to speak to lawyers. Look, this is my gut instinct. Have we got a arguable case? And they will tell us, yes, you have, but these are the risks. These are the risks you're taking, only in, in legal risks, but also financial risks, possibly. Um, but for us, it was also, you know, our reputation, what what happens if we lose. But there is also, you know, in that situation, it was also, well, we can't be any worse off than we are. And when I began 40 years ago, there were also risks, the risks of not knowing what you were doing, yeah. the risk of not it not working out, yeah. the risk of you making terrible mistakes, the risk of your own reputation being tarnished. Not that I had a reputation when I began, but, you know, you're always taking risks. So, it, you know, but a part of me also kind of feels that go with a gut instinct, but always sound out people, particularly people who can offer a different perspective yeah put that all in the round, discuss it with people and then 
agree and uh, and if you can come to collective decision then it's great because you can shoulder the responsibility yeah. equally so you just mentioned about your own reputation you are you do have an amazing reputation as an incredibly strong minded change maker and a woman leader and a founder sometimes we discuss in the social founder network about that whole issue of your own personal brand as the founder versus the organizational brand. Mm. And when anybody says to me, South or Black Sisters, I think Pragna Patel and vice versa. Mm. My gut feeling is that that is hugely the strength of the organization, you personally your and your personal brand. Have there been times when you've worried about that? Or is that is that just what's happened? And no, you have to worry about that. You have to more. worry about that all the time because it's very easy to also... Um, you know, the organization is not just one person. Uh, that's really, really important. And nobody, I don't know if I said this earlier, but nobody achieves anything on their own. You've said it a couple of times. And I, and think, I think that's a really yeah. important, you know, yes, okay, you might have had a vision, but you've brought others along and others have contributed equally. They might not necessarily always be the face of the organization. So as a leader, if you like, I'm very conscious that there are others who've contributed. Yes. And to make sure that that is always acknowledged and recognised in all sorts of ways. So, for example, over the years, nominating people for awards because they deserve it, encouraging others to speak out and to also be part of the face of the organisation. People have different skills. Some people prefer being behind the scenes, but always trying to provide that opportunity for people. And I'm not saying that we're perfect. I'm not saying I'm perfect, and I suspect I'm not. But you have to worry about, you know, organisations that are dependent on just one or two people. I think it's true that that is also the case with SBS, not just one people, one person, but there are a couple of us or maybe a few more who are the kind of outward face of the organisation that, you know, people recognise instantly. And that's not necessarily always a healthy thing. Um, how to try and bring others in is always a perennial, perennial question. How to make sure that there are successes is a perennial question. I don't think it's as easy as, as people think it is to have a succession policy because it's about having people, generations change, priorities change, um, you know, younger generation want to do activism in a different way, perhaps, have different goals, don't necessarily see this as a career move. I mean, for us, I mean, the one thing I would say to you when I left college and thought, OK, so this is, I think, where I want to be. I didn't see it as a career. It's what I believed in. Yeah. And so for me... I've never been able to separate a career from from my activism. Even when I've you just been as a lawyer. Even when I've trained yeah. as a lawyer, and that, the the training has just given me more skills, yes. and so and that's enabled me to be a better activist. Yeah. So for me, this has never been about having a career, and so and it's different. Different generations face different economic hurdles and problems, and for for a lot of younger people getting a job, getting on the property ladder are vital things. So they may not, you know, when I began this, I, I, 
you know, was on the dole. And I, you know, I didn't have a, a salary immediately, but you just did all this. And in those days, it was easy to be on the dole, relatively easy to be on the dole and still do this kind of work. And so, you know, things, times change, climates change, political sit- landscape changes. So it's not easy, but it is important to keep trying to ensure, at least acknowledge that, there is a collective yeah. of people yeah. I mean, who have contributed to the, SBS. Uh, that's good, good. The asset that of having you as a as a high profile speaker. You've done your TEDx talks. You've won amazing awards. You're one of the Guardian Hundred Women of the Year not long ago. Uh, that is fantastic for the organisation. Mm. So I think that that was always that balance between the organisation's brand and the founder's brand. Mm. But you are doing that very well, I think, getting that balance very correctly. Yeah. I mean, do, you, do you think that at some stage you, you... Do you think about stepping down? Oh, or? yes. How, oh, yes. How do you Every other that? day. I know, I used to for ages at Media Trust for years. Every other day. <laughs> you know, it's a really, it's really... It's a really funny, funny position to be in. Mm. Because mm. on the one hand, it is your baby. Yeah, right. It definitely. You know, it's hard to cut that umbilical cord, and sometimes that's healthy. Sometimes it's not healthy, and trying to work out when it's healthy to move and step down is a really important thing to do. At the same time, because I don't see it as my career, it's kind of where I want to be to continue my political activism. If I am waking up every day angry with the world. Yes then I think I can go into SBS and change the world. What are you working on now, campaign-wise? So, campaign-wise, we are now campaigning around a number of things. First of all, with the new government, we're hoping that it will commit themselves to um, introducing a domestic abuse bill, which um, had been introduced in the previous parliament and then dropped because of the election. We're hoping to bring it back into parliament. We want it to include more protections for migrant women, vulnerable women. So that's an area of work. So important. Um, We're worried about the current government's aspirations to change the immigration system to make it much more difficult for migrants to enter the country. But we're also worried that that will dilute rights that migrants have, particularly migrant women who've gone through abuse. So we're worried about that. We're worried about the government saying that... um, They want to review, judicial review as a tool that organisations like us use when we need to hold the government to account. We think that if they dilute and make it more difficult for us to be able to bring legal cases where governments have failed, then that is a bad, sad day for democracy. We're worried about dilution of the Human Rights Act. These are all these things that are on our plate. We're worried about the the fact that there is very little legal aid left. And for most people, access to justice is about access to court, Mm -hmm. to legal advice and representation. So we're worried about the shrinking of the legal aid system completely. You need to carry on, Pregna. We can't lose you as a founder now. You need to grow the the impact of the organisation even more and keep going. And and presumably your work in the media will be even more important as well. I'm not sure how much we can reach out to wider audiences. Sometimes we manage to get... Um, something in, say, the Metro or the Evening Standard, which I think it's really important. In fact, those papers, I think, are vital. When I go on the trains every morning uh, and people pick up and read, 
And I think, well, that's where the space is. That's where people, you catch attention. Excellent. So I think um, we try our best. I'm not sure that we can entirely succeeding in reaching new audiences. So we have tried, yeah. Yeah. resources permitting, yeah. to do work in local schools, to do work, um, always taking up offers, for example, to speak in debates or Great. to give talks at universities, to, to try and reach the younger generation particularly of course I'm a bit sort of old in the tooth but there are others who are more savvy with social media your profile is very good on social media if anybody interested in having a look google Mm. Pragna Patel and you'll see you come up all over the place but there must be young women who weren't even born when you when you founded South of Black Sisters who are now campaigning like mad and absolutely and they're doing great work in their own ways you know people who are campaigning around climate change and all sorts of other But also around domestic abuse. I would say some of the younger feminists who have resurrected feminist conferences. Nice. Is wonderful. Yeah. I think there was a time in late 90s, the 2000 onwards really, when feminism had become a dirty word. And now feminism is okay again. So that's fantastic. And I think that's the work of younger generation yeah. of feminists who are coming to the issues in their own way. They may be having the conversations we've already had, but the fact that they're having them is really, really important. So I think that's great. For anybody listening, younger or older, who's thinking of setting up an organisation, whether it's a campaigning organisation or a service-providing organisation or an an organisation like Sunful Black Sisters that does both, brilliantly and integrates the two what would be your sort of top tips for anybody you've talked a lot about about all the, the ways that you've managed to set mm. up and run South or Black Sisters mm. but is there are there one or two things that you'd say don't be afraid oh that's lovely do not be afraid go with your gut feelings and your instincts that I think is key and then everything else you find, skills, you find the people, you find the funding somehow. But my main thing is, if there is that fire in your belly, act on it. Do not be afraid. Pragna Patel, that is a wonderful way to end this interview. We can't thank you enough. And I'm going to follow you with great interest because you are going to be personally and your organisation, South of Black Sisters, much needed over the next few months and years. And good luck with everything. And thank you for everything that you've done over the last 40 years. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Pragna's skills, determination and resilience are an inspiration, as is her innovative partnership and campaigning work. We'd love to hear your feedback on her interview. Please email me at caroline at socialfounder.org. And you can find links to Pragna's work and to Southall Black Sisters at www.socialfounder.org, where you can also order Pragna's books and support her work. Thank you, Pragna, for your openness and useful learnings. We won't forget your words of advice. If there is that fire in your belly, act on it. Don't be afraid. Thanks so much for listening to Social Founder Stories. I'll really look forward to your feedback. Do subscribe to the podcast. We have some fantastic guests coming up. You can also sign up to our newsletter on our website, socialfounder.org. Then you can hear about our events, blogs and founder stories. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Social Founders. And of course, if you are a social founder or even thinking of becoming one, let me know. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network in association with Kiva, the Center for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. Thank you.